This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. The Mexican Revolution of 1910. That's the one with the slogan, Tierra y Libertad, Land and Liberty. The one where Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata led the fight to overthrow Porfirio Diaz, who had invited investors from the United States to buy millions of acres of Mexican land and take control of Mexican railroads, oil, and mining. That revolution was sparked by a band of migrant rebels from the United States, the Magonistas, led by a brilliant radical named Ricardo Flores Magón. Now that story has been told by historian Kelly Little Hernandez. She holds the Thomas E. Lifka Endowed Chair in History at UCLA, where she is director of the Ralph J. Bunch Center for African American Studies. She's a leader in the fight against mass incarceration and author of the award-winning books Migra and City of Inmates. She's also the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award. Her new book on race, empire, and revolution in the borderlands has the wonderful title, Bad Mexicans. Kelly Little Hernandez, welcome back. Thank you for having me on, John. Well, everyone knows something about Pancho Villa and Zapata. I didn't know anything about the Magonistas until I read your book, Who Was Ricardo Flores Magón? And how did he become the target of a joint U.S.-Mexico counterinsurgency campaign in 1910? So Ricardo Flores Magón was a journalist in Mexico, and he was part of a small group of journalists at the turn of the 20th century who were challenging the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz, and they largely were working out of Mexico City. And after Porfirio Diaz had attempted several times to suppress their their newspaper, Ración, and put them in jail and in prison and smashed up their printing presses and actually issued a gag order prohibiting any newspaper in Mexico from publishing their words or articles. The gag orders issued in 1903. This group of journalists, dissident journalists, crossed the border into the United States, into Laredo, Texas in particular, to relaunch their newspaper, Regeneración, and hopefully organize a revolution against the dictator back in Mexico. And so what this book does, it tells the story of how they rebuilt their social movement on the U.S. side of the border and the efforts of the Mexican government and the United States government working together to suppress their social movement and to stop them from inciting a revolution. Now, why would the United States government get involved? Well, the United States government, um, through really significant U.S. investors, think about the Guggenheims and the Rockefellers, all the major names of the Robert Barron era, they had made major investments in Diaz's Mexico. As you had said, bought up millions of acres of land and come to dominate key industries from railroads to oil to mining. And they wanted to protect those investments. And Diaz had always been the one to protect those investments. So they wanted to protect Diaz. And so it's the United States government and the Mexican government working together to try to suppress a social movement led by journalists, but as joined by ordinary people, cotton pickers and miners, migrant workers, and whatnot. Let's talk about Mexicans in the United States in 1910. As historians, we remember the Mexican War of 1846 to 48, when the United States conquered a huge swath from Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, and a huge population of Mexicans 
We're now inside the borders of the United States, so we're talking about 50 years after that when the Southwest has a large population of people who originally lived in Mexico. Certainly. So there's the population of, of Mexicans and indigenous persons and um, communities that were living on the land base that um, had been claimed by Mexico, but was seized by the United States after the U.S.-Mexico War. And then when you have the integration of the U.S. and Mexican economies that begins to happen really in the 1880s with the completion of a transcontinental railroad running north and south between the United States and, and central Mexico, um, then you also see the rise of mass labor migration from Mexico to the United States. And that's really happening at the turn of the 20th century. About you know, 100,000 Mexicans are migrating in the early years of the 20th century to come up to jobs in the United States. And they're coming because foreign investors and, and major Mexican elites are displacing indigenous and rural communities by buying up and privatizing land across Mexico. Those displaced um, workers, you know, they go to look for jobs in towns on haciendas and on the railroads. And by the early 20th century, they're beginning to migrate north into the United States in search of work. 1910, there's also a socialist movement in the United States concerned about a lot of the same issues of exploitation and democracy that the Magonistas are concerned about in Mexico. Tell us about socialism in the United States and the Magonistas' relationship with the Anglo-American and European socialists of the United States. When the Ricardo Flores Magón and his friends and journalists and the social movement begin to rebuild their community here in the United States, and that's happening between 1904 and 1910, they come into contact with some of the leading radical voices in the United States. Think Emma Goldman having conversations with Ricardo Flores Magón in St. Louis was a hotbed of labor organizing and socialist politics. They're certainly influencing one another's thoughts and minds. And Emma Goldman, of course, is one of the great anarcho-feminists of the early 20th century. And Ricardo goes on to become an anarcho-feminist as well. He stands against marriage as a form of slavery. Um, and so they're talking to each other, they're influencing each other, they're figuring out that there are transcontinental, international relationships among workers and organizers that if the Rockefellers and the Guggenheims and others are um, playing an anti-labor role in the United States and they're gaining a lot of their capital and their profit and their power out of their investments in Mexico, that they have a shared goal, right, of challenging the power of these elites, which has extended across borders. And so um, Anglo-American progressives and radicals, especially members of the Socialist Party, by the 1910 had become strong supporters of the Magonistas. And they do a couple of things in particular. They help the Magonistas reach a broader audience by publishing um, books and articles in English in major progressive newspapers about the conditions of life and labor in Mexico. That's really important because the mainstream progressive Anglo-American population at the time, in the early 20th century, had a vision of Porfirio Diaz as being a great reformer, right? He had brought stability to Mexico and they didn't know much about the labor conditions in Mexico. And the Magonistas, through their partnerships with Anglo-American radicals helped to change that narrative in the United States, which makes it more uncomfortable for the United States government 
to support the Diaz administration and try to suppress the Magonistas. So you say this group of Mexican radicals and revolutionaries that had created a new base in Laredo sparked what became revolution against Diaz in Mexico. How exactly did they do that? So they cross into Laredo, Texas in January of 1904. And their first goal is to relaunch their newspaper, Renaracion. But within days of arriving in Laredo, they notice that they're being followed everywhere. And they knew that that was Diaz's spies. So they move to San Antonio and then St. Louis, where they are able to relaunch their newspaper. They establish a political party, the PLM, El Partido Liberal Mexicano. And they also begin to establish cells or focos across the United States that are both subscribers to the newspaper or members of the PLM, but also they're beginning to gather arms to ready themselves for an armed assault in Mexico. And there's a labor strike at a a mine in northern Mexico, in Cananea, Sonora, Mexico, in June of 1906. And it's that labor strike which turns deadly against uh, the Mexican workers who are striking against an Anglo-American mine operator in Mexico that inspires the the PLM to call for an all-out armed revolution in Mexico within one year's time. So between 1906, it's really after that uprising and when they issue a manifesto, right, a program to the nation saying this armed uprising is not just about unseating Porfirio Diaz, but it's also about protecting labor rights for Mexican workers, about returning land to indigenous and rural communities that have been displaced through the Diaz regime, about ending child labor, about ending debt servitude, about protecting democracy, about this social and economic revolution. Well, the United States looks at that and says, oh no. (laughs) And they get really busy. The U.S. Marshals, Department of War, the Attorney General, the Post Office, everybody gets involved, all hands on deck to do whatever they can to stop the PLM from organizing this revolution in Mexico. And you say that the Magonistas not only changed the course of history in Mexico, they opened a new chapter in the history of policing in the United States. Tell us a little more about that. The PLM is able to um, launch four armed raids into Mexico, one in September of 1906 and three in June of 1908. And it's immediately following the raids of June of 1908, which are the most lethal and stunning and damaging for the Diaz administration, that the United States President Theodore Roosevelt, along with the U.S. Attorney General at the time, Charles Bonaparte, they establish a new police force to be able to enforce federal law. What's the name of this police force? Police force is the one and only, at that time, Bureau of Investigation, which goes on to become the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So one of the really important parts about the Magonista story and how it relates to U.S. history is that the FBI, which goes on to become a counterinsurgency super force throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, um, really cuts its teeth. One of its very first big cases was chasing down members of the PLM and doing everything they could to suppress the outbreak of the 1910 Mexican Revolution. And then there's a huge and horrifying postscript to your story. El Plan de San Diego, an uprising in South Texas in 1915. You call it one of the largest and deadliest uprisings against white settler supremacy in U.S. history. I never heard about this. Tell us about it. 
Yeah, there's so much in this book um, that many people won't have heard much about. But I must say that there are many scholars who've been writing on these issues for quite some time, and I, I lean on their work. And the goal of this book is to haul that knowledge out of the academy and to bring it to a broader public. So Plan de San Diego, as you said, is um, an uprising that happens in South Texas in the summer of 1915. And this is right in the middle of the Mexican Revolution. And a group of Mexican nationals and Mexican Americans get together and they concoct a plan that if they have already removed Diaz from power in Mexico and are on their way to gaining economic and a political revolution in Mexico, why should that not transcend borders as well? So they look north to Texas and to the United States. They form an army for all races and peoples. They recruit um, Black folks, Asian folks, and others to um, move across South Texas to assassinate any white male 16 or older and to seize land. And that the first lands seized by this army of liberation for the people would go to African-Americans as a sanctuary from white supremacy. And the next set of lands would go to indigenous peoples as a sanctuary from settler supremacy. Wow. It's an incredible vision and then would go to Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, but they wanted to really unlock the land from white settler supremacy. And so they begin their uprising in the summer of 1915 in South Texas, ripping up railroad tracks, yes, committing assassinations and more. And the response is extraordinary of the vigilantes, the U.S. Marshals, Department of War begin to summarily lynch and kill an uncounted number of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans across the region. Historians and some folks have estimated that anywhere between 300 and perhaps as high as 5,000 Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were murdered in retaliation for Oplan de San Diego. And so you have two things that happened in the summer of 1915 and, and heading into 1916. Is one, one of the most significant uprisings against white settler supremacy in U.S. history. This army of all non-white peoples coming together. And you also have one of the deadliest suppression campaigns of that kind of uprising in U.S. history. And here's the shocking thing. So almost nobody knows it happened. Um, this is a, a history, Latinx history general, in general, Mexican-American history in particular, um, that has not gotten enough coverage in the canon of the American story. And so this book about this relatively small group of Mexican migrants who had a particular dream of the early 20th century, my hope is that as part of a broader program and campaign to kick open the doors of U.S. history, to see so many of the stories we hadn't seen before, to think about how they transform our understanding of who we are uh, as a people. And one last thing, your title, Bad Mexicans, where does that come from? Bad Mexicans is a term that the dictator and his regime in Mexico used to describe the dissidents, the rebels, the insurgents. And so he would call Ricardo Flores Magón and his the members of his social movement bad Mexicans. And they were bad Mexicans, malos mexicanos, for challenging his regime. Now, of course, right, I knew the moment I knew I was going to write this book was the moment that we had another autocrat here in the United States, President Donald Trump, 
who had declared Mexican migrants to be bad hombres. And I wanted to provide a history as to what he was stirring up when he was using that kind of rhetoric targeting Mexican migrants, that there had been another autocrat at another time who had declared Mexicans seeking a better life for themselves and their families as malos mexicanos. And so this is a part of the shared story of um, the freedom dreams of Mexico's dispossessed and the attempts of various autocrats across time to suppress their, their social movements. Kelly Little Hernandez, her new book on race, empire, and revolution in the borderlands during and after Mexico's 1910 revolution has the wonderful title, Bad Mexicans. Kelly, thanks for all your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.